How many love the Bible? Say amen if you love the Bible. This is the greatest job in the world, getting to preach and teach the stories of Scripture. And um, I have loved this Joseph um, series, and we're going to finish it today. Chapter 42, first five verses of chapter 42. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, which will flip over to chapter 45 of Genesis, verse 1. Now, Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. Then if you'll flip over to chapter 50, the last chapter of Genesis in verse number 15. Genesis 15, or 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us now. And maybe he will repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus shall you say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to him, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Holy Spirit, we are so grateful for your presence, so grateful that you have never once left us alone. That is our confession today. You walk with us even in adversity and trial and pain. Even when we fail, you walk with us. And today I pray, God, as we finish the series about living lives of honor, I pray, God, that you would make us men and women that are honorable, who have lives that demonstrate untarnished honor. Speak to us in these moments. I ask God for your anointing to rest upon the ministry of your word and upon my life. Help me to speak clearly. Help me to speak with integrity and with boldness. And may the word of the Lord transform our hearts this day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you move across aisles and shake several hands. Welcome one another. Two glad tidings this morning, if you would. Then you may be seated this morning. 
We are going to um, conclude this little three-part series on the life of Joseph. So many ways that the Joseph story can be told and so many different pieces or themes that we could look at. But we have been looking at the subject or the theme of honor and uh, having honorable lives. I, I said in the very first message, and I said it again last week, that we are defining honor as doing not what is best for us in the moment, but what is expected by God. To be honorable means I don't act in a way that will make me better or make things better for me. I act in a way that is obedient and pleasing to God. In our first message, in lesson one, we learned several things. First of all, we talked about Joseph being the immature, 17-year-old, hated brother and favored son of his father, Jacob. He was the favored son, and his father gave him the coat of many colors. Joseph wasn't too wise, knowing that he was the favorite. He kind of rubbed that in the face of his brothers, or faces of his brothers, and he just created more anger and hatred. We also learned that... uh, As a result of that, he was the hated brother. So hated that he ended up being sold into slavery, into Egypt, where he went into Potiphar's house and he served as a slave. Joseph's father, Jacob, was told that Joseph was dead, that he had been killed by a wild animal. And so Jacob lived these next years thinking that his son Joseph had been killed. But he lived in the home of Potiphar and God blessed him. In that, in that role as a slave. God blessed him repeatedly. And the theme of those, those chapters is that the Lord was with him. No matter what he did, God was with him because he was honorable and he stayed true and he stayed faithful. Joseph would not compromise. When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, he maintained his honor. And though he ended up being falsely accused... And thrown into prison, he maintained his integrity and continued to be a man with untarnished honor. In lesson two, we picked up his life in prison. Because of his being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, he is thrown into prison by Potiphar. And so now we have this young man who was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, was doing well, but now is lied about by his master's wife and now finds himself in prison. But the Lord was with him and he continued to bless Joseph and Joseph was given more responsibilities and more authority. And it was clear that God's hand was upon Joseph. There was that day that that came when the butler and the baker, who were also prisoners, came to Joseph. Each of them had had a dream, and they said, can you tell us what these dreams mean? And, of course, he interpreted the dream for both the butler and the baker. For the butler, it was good news. Three days, and he was going to be restored to Pharaoh's palace. And so the butler went first, so the baker said, hey, tell me what my dream means too, only to find out that his dream meant three days his head was going to be lopped off and he was going to be done. And so the baker kind of wished he had never asked, but nevertheless, the butler was restored, the baker was killed, but Joseph finds himself as a man that God uses to interpret dreams. He tells the butler, when you get out, remember me, but what does the text say? The butler forgot him. And so now he is the forgotten, he is the forgotten slave. 
But when Pharaoh had a dream, remember that? Pharaoh had a dream. He actually had two dreams. The two were actually one, seven fat cows and seven thin cows. And the seven fat cows ate the seven thin cows and seven thick stalks of grain and seven thin stalks of grain. And the seven thick stalks of grain devoured the seven thin stalks of grain. That's a mouthful. Try saying that really fast like I just did. But anyway, he said, the dream means that there'll be seven really good years, plenty, and then seven years of famine. And my suggestion, Joseph said, is that you store up food during those seven good years. He says that to Pharaoh, and then you'll have plenty to distribute the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh said, you're the guy. Someone with that kind of wisdom needs to be in control. And so now he goes from the pits um, to his slavery role, to the prison house, and now back to the palace where he is in charge. The Lord was with them. But through it all, Joseph did not have his passion for the dream giver daunted. He did not become impatient. He did not yield to pride or refuse to submit to God or waste God's blessing on himself. He maintained his honor through it all. Moses, who is the author of the first five books of the Bible, at the end of chapter 41, wants to kind of set the scene for us. And here's what Moses said. The seven years of plenty ended and the seven years of famine began, just like Joseph had said. And notice what Moses says. The famine was in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was some bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out. They wanted bread. And Pharaoh said, go to Joseph and whatever he tells you to do, do it. And the famine was over the face of the earth. And Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. The famine was severe in the land of Egypt. So all the countries came to Joseph. All the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the land. So this is the setup for the rest of the story. Everybody's coming to Egypt to get food. Well, part of that everybody was Jacob and his family back in their homeland. So Jacob, who is the father of Joseph, sends his 10 sons. Keep in mind that Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead. He's been dead for years. He held his bloody coat and knew that he had been killed by a wild animal. Has no clue that Joseph is still living. But they're hungry. And so Jacob says to his other 10 sons, I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to buy food. The text says Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. So he said to his sons, don't keep looking at one another, wondering what you ought to do. I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to buy us food there so that we can live and not die. So Joseph's 10 brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers because he said, if I do, there'll be some calamity that will befall him. So you have the 10 older brothers and then you have Joseph who they think is dead And then you have the baby brother, Benjamin, and Jacob is holding on to Benjamin. He's not about to lose his last son of his beloved wife, Rachel. He holds on to Benjamin. He tells the boys, you go get food, but I'm not going to let Benjamin go. So we get to chapter 42 and Joseph meets his brothers. Now keep in mind, they come into the storehouse and they're wanting to buy food. These 10 men from Canaan have come in and, and Joseph is sitting in the storehouse, ruling over all of the land. 
And Joseph recognizes them, but they have no clue it is Joseph. The last time they saw Joseph was at a pit and he was 17 years old. And now he is clean shaven. They thought he was probably dead. And he is speaking through an Egyptian interpreter. He's grown up and spiritually they had never thought anything about what God might do in his life. And so they are oblivious to the fact that Joseph is standing before them. But he knows all of them. And so Joseph begins, you can call it playing with them or testing them, whatever you want to think. The text doesn't tell us. It just tells us what he does. He says to his 10 brothers, I think you're spies. I think you're just here to spy out the land. And they are very quick to say, no, 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 we're not spies. Our, our father sent us here so that we might have food. And they are very clear. They say, we are all brothers. There were 12 of us. One is already gone. That's the one they're talking to. They just don't know it. And one is back home still with our father. They kind of spill the beans on the one back home. And so Joseph says, no, no, you are spies. I am sure of it. So Joseph says, I'm going to have to see the younger brother if I'm going to give you any food at all. He puts him in prison for three days. And then he says, I'll tell you what, I'll just leave one in the prison and the rest of you go home. You bring your younger brother and I'll give you more, but I'll give you a little food for the time being. But we're going to keep and hold hostage one of the brothers. We want to see the younger brother. They then, this is really funny, they argued among themselves. Keep in mind, they don't know that Joseph understands them. He's talking through an Egyptian interpreter. And so they're kind of pushing each other. And Reuben says, I told you this would happen. And, and they're arguing this like brothers would. And they're all thinking, man, we are, our sin is coming back to haunt us. And Joseph watches it all as these brothers are arguing. So finally, they put Simeon in prison. Simeon stays and they're sent on their way. And Joseph does something kind of interesting. He says to his servant, I want you to take the money they just paid, put it back in their sacks, put it back in their sacks. Let's really mess with their heads when they get back home. So they get back home and Simeon is in prison in Egypt and they're back home with the food and they tell their dad what has happened and that, that only if they go back with Benjamin, can they get more food and they, can they get Simeon out and they realize the money is in their sacks. And they kind of get really nervous. They're going to think we have stolen it. God is really against us. And so they make this request to Jacob. Can we take Benjamin back so we can get Simeon back and we can get more food? And Jacob said, no, I'm not going to allow you to take Benjamin. Now, can we just for a moment be really human here? How do you think that made Simeon feel? Anybody wonder? I mean, he's in jail. Are you all listening to this story? Do you get this? Simeon is in jail. And I mean, he's like chopped liver compared to Benjamin. He's got to stay there. And, and dad says, no, no, we'll lose Simeon, but we are not going to lose Benjamin. Reuben promises and pleads, but Jacob says, no, not going to let him go. However, the food ran out and they were hungry again. And so Jacob has to send them back to Egypt. Judah says, Dad, listen, I know you want us to go, but they've already told us we'll not even get to see that guy's face again. He's not going to give us any food unless we bring Benjamin. And Jacob said, there's no way. Jacob is even angered with them. And he says, why did you deal so wrongfully with me and tell the man whether you still had another brother? In other words, why did you guys have to open your mouth and even tell them that I had one here? Couldn't you have just left well enough alone? And, 
And the brothers say, how did we know that that's what he was going to do? We just, he asked us and we told him about you and we told him about the brother. And Judas says, dad, I promise I will take care of Benjamin. If you just let me go. And Jacob digs his heels in and says, no way. But finally the food runs out completely. And Jacob relents. He says, I want you to take double cash. Let's fill the bags with fruit. Let's take all kinds of gifts. And you can take Benjamin. But please, please bring Benjamin back to me. Because if, if you lose him, he, he said, this old man's going to be done. I'll, I'll go to my grave if you lose Benjamin. So they take Benjamin. They take food in the sacks. They take fr- or fruit in the sacks. They take wealth. And they go back and uh, Joseph sees his baby brother. It's such an emotional moment for Joseph that he has to kind of hide out for just a moment and get his composure. Again, they have no idea it's Joseph. He knows them and he sees Benjamin. So he says to his servant, I want to have them all over for dinner tonight. He speaks through an interpreter and I want to have my family. They don't know it's his family. They, nobody knows what's going on except Joseph. I want to have them all come over to dinner. And that kind, of, that kind of flipped the guys out a little bit because, you know, they've been accused of being spies and Simeon's been in prison. Now they've got to go to the second in the kingdom's house for, for dinner. And they're all frightened by that. And they talk a little bit about the father. He finds out about his father's well-being. And the Bible says in Genesis 43 that Joseph for a moment loses restraint. His heart yearned for his brother, so Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. He went into another room and went into the chamber and he wept. They took a deep breath, washed his face, came back out, act like nothing was going on, and they sat down for dinner. Dinner was served. This, by the way, should have been a sign to the brothers that something is going on. Let me just, I can't do any better than just read it to you, all right? So here they are. They're in, they're in the palace and they're in the, you know, the big banquet room and Joseph's having his family over and he's talking Egyptian through an interpreter. They don't know him. He knows them. And they set him at the table. They set him a place by himself and them by themselves. The Egyptians ate with, uh, who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for that is an abomination. And look at this. And they set before him The firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. So the table setting was the boys were in order of their birth. Okay. And and look at the text. It says, and the men looked in astonishment at one another. Like, how did they know who was the oldest? Who was the second? All the 10 of them, or uh, I guess 11 of them lined up from the oldest to the youngest in the Bible, good. I, folks, come on, smile at me or do something. This is a great story. And so they're lined up around the table and they're by birth order. And if that's not, if that's not good enough, he then told the servant to take servings and he put Benjamin's serving and it was, he got five times more mashed potatoes than the rest of the boys at the table. How cool is that? I mean, something's going on and, and, and this dinner takes place and Benjamin is, I like this. And he is just, he is just tearing the food up. And the other guys are thinking, man, what, what have we done? And so now they get ready to go home. And um, we read these words. He commanded the steward of the house saying, uh, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry Put each man's money, put the money back in the sack, and also put my uh, 
cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away and they and their donkeys. And when they'd gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, get up, now follow the men and overtake them. And then say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You've done evil in so doing. So the servant overtook them and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, why are you saying this to us? Far be it from us that we would do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouths of the sacks. How would we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? And they, they, the brothers made a deal. With whomever you find the cup, let that one die. And the rest of us will be slaves. And he said, now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave but the rest of you shall be blameless. In other words, the brother said, listen, we're so sure that we don't have that silver cup that if you find it in one of, one of our sacks, that guy can die and the rest of us will go back to Egypt and we will be your slaves. And the servant says, no need for that. Whoever we find, find it in his sack, he'll be our slave and the rest of you can go on your way. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground and each opened his sack, so he searched. He began with the oldest and he left off with the youngest and yeah, you guessed it. They found the cup in Benjamin's sack. The one that they had promised would get home safely. And all the boys tore their clothes. And each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Let me just stop, pause for a moment. These are the same ten brothers that had sold their father's favorite Joseph into slavery and had torn his, jack, or torn his coat up and put blood on it and lied to their dad and all these years lived a lie. And they're really sensing God is judging us for this now. And now Benjamin is going to have to go back and be a slave. And we're going to have to go back and tell our dad that our word meant nothing and we've lost our brother. They get back to uh, the palace and Judah, Judah pleads. Uh, Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. And they fell down before him on the ground. By the way, remember um, the dream? The sun, the moon, and 11 stars, your sheaves bowing down to my sheaves. They fall on their face before Joseph. And Joseph says to them, what deed is this that you've done? Didn't you know that somebody like me practices divination? And Judas said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? In other words, I, I don't have the words. How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. In other words... Judah's saying, we're just paying for what we did a long time ago. And he is, and keep in mind, they're saying this, and Joseph understands them completely, and they're hearing it through an interpreter, but he hears the emotion in their voice when they say it. We're simply paying for our iniquity. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he'll be my slave. As for you, you go in peace. In other words, Joseph said, no, you guys go on back. I'll keep Benjamin. He, he wasn't going to do that, but he is making them. He's playing with them. I'm just going to go with that. But he is making them feel this. And then Judah came near to him. Let's have a little talk. Just man to man. Oh, my Lord, please. May I speak a word in my Lord's hearing? Don't get angry with me because you're like Pharaoh. 
My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And so we told you, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead. <laughs> He's talking to his brother that they say is dead. He alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And then you said to the servants, Bring him down, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said, The lad can't leave with his father. If we leave, the father would die. But you said, Unless the youngest comes, we won't see your face again. So it was when we went up to, the, to your servant, my father, we told him your words. And the father said, Go back, buy us a little food. But we said, We can't go if our youngest brother doesn't go. We'll not see the man's face unless he goes with us. And then your servant, my father, said, You know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me. That's Joseph. And I said, Surely he's torn to pieces. I've not seen him since. But if you take this one from me, and calamity befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down with sorrow to the grave. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it is going to happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. In other words, Joseph, if you keep Benjamin, my father is going to die when he finds out he's not with us. So your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety. I became the down payment for the lad to my father, saying, if I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. And Judah says, please... Let me stay instead of the lad as a slave and let Benjamin go up with his brothers. How can I go to my father if Benjamin is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. Judah, um, maybe the only time in his life that he showed that kind of sincerity. But it got to Joseph. And Joseph has moved and he will reunite with his brothers. Look at the text. Joseph could not restrain himself. He cried out, get everybody out of here. And so no one stood with him and Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept aloud and the Egyptians, he was so loud, the Egyptians and Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said, I am Joseph. Is my dad still alive? His brothers are weeping. They can't answer him. They're dismayed in his presence. They're afraid. Joseph said, please come near to me. And so they came near. He said, I'm Joseph, your brother. The guy you sold into slavery, into Egypt. But don't be grieved. Wow, these words. Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land and there's still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here. But God, and he's made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all of his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Imagine how uh, they all must have felt. What a, what a moment that must have been. Fear and emotion and tears. So they go back. They load up the wagons. And can you imagine Jacob when he hears the news, Joseph is alive. First of all, can you imagine how the brothers must have felt telling him that they have lived a lie all of these years? But your son Joseph is alive. The Bible says when he saw the wagons coming, Jacob's spirit was revived. They return home to get Jacob. Joseph says, bring Jacob, bring all the family, 70 in all, and let them live here in Egypt, in Goshen, just outside of Egypt, because there are five years left of the famine. The Bible says that Jacob was 130 then when he came back to Egypt. When he died, think about this, he was 147. 147 minus 130 is 17. He lived 17 years 
on the front end of Joseph's life. That's when he was sold into slavery and had 17 more years, the end of his life with Joseph in Egypt. Finally, Jacob dies and the brothers are a little afraid when it comes time for the funeral. Look at the words in Genesis 50. We read them when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They said, you know what? He may hate us now. He may actually repay us for all the evil we've done. So they sent a messenger to him and they said that your father asks you to forgive us. Your father said, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. And look at the words of Joseph. Joseph said to them as he wept, he said, um, and they said, we are your servants. Joseph said, don't be afraid for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. There's the story. That's the Joseph story. Um, A lot of places we could go, but I want to just, I want to hone in for the next 10 minutes on three more principles of unharnished honor. These are, these are pretty important. Maybe the most important of this whole series. Number one, um, those with untarnished honor will rest in the confident assurance that the unseen God is able to turn evil designs into good. How many are thankful that God can turn that which is meant for evil into good? Are you thankful for that? He turns it around. But those who have untarnished honor rest in that fact that what's happening right now is not the end of the story because God can turn it around. That's faith. That's what Christian people are supposed to do and how they are supposed to live. Knowing that God can turn around and reverse circumstances and turn what looks like evil into good. Satan may mean it for evil, but as Paul said, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That's untarnished honor. God, I can't see you. I don't always feel you, but I know and I'm going to rest in the assurance that you are going to turn that which was meant for evil into my good. Margaret Clarkson in the banner says this, pain is pain and sorrow is sorrow. It hurts. It limits, it impoverishes, it isolates, it restrains, it works devastation deep within the personality. It circumscribes in a thousand different ways. There is nothing good about pain. But the gifts God can give with it are the richest the human spirit can know. There's nothing good about the pit for Joseph. Nothing good about the prison. Nothing good about false accusation or hatred by his brothers. But oh my goodness, the gift that came out of that pain when he was able to preserve his family and ultimately the lineage through which the Messiah would come. The gifts that come out of that pain are the richest the human spirit can ever know. Warren Wearsby said this, realism is idealism that has been through the fire and got purified. Cynicism is idealism that has been through the fire and got burned. Now, whether you get burned or purified is not determined by the intensity of the heat, but by the malleability of your spirits. That's a pretty powerful statement. What is, what is the heat going to do to you? Is it going to make you cynical or is it going to make you a person of faith? Untarnished honor will rest in the confident assurance that the unseen God is able to turn evil designs into good. Number two, very quickly, those with untarnished honor will resign themselves 
This is a really important point. It's a little bit of a theological truth that you need to get. But just bear with me. Give me four or five minutes on this one. And then I'll close with the last one. The untarnished honor. Those with untarnished honor will resign themselves to the unfathomable mystery of God's providence that interacts with the human free will. For years, for centuries, people have said, okay, so is it predestination? God makes everything happen and we have no control or is it all our control and human free will? And people have argued and written commentaries and and had lectures and have debates and we just keep going over the same point. Untarnished honor resigns themselves to the fact that it is a mystery that somehow the providence of God works with the human will and brings to pass the plan of God. There's so many places in this story where we see both at work. And Joseph, recognizing both, he begs his the butler friend to remember him. I need you to remember me. I need your free will to remember me when you get back to Pharaoh. He refused the advances of Potiphar's wife, knowing that that could turn everything around and he would sin against God. He knew that free will was important. All of the twists and the turns that he took with his brothers, human will at work. And yet to his brothers, God sent me here. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Both humanity and God at work. And that interplay is a mystery we have to accept. You see, as long as we try to sort out the difference or deny one or the other, we're going to struggle with having untarnished character. Because listen, if it's all free will, that means all of humanity, they're the ones in charge. You know what's going to happen? We're going to get bitter and we're going to get angry. I can't believe you treated me that way. I can't believe that you were that way. Joseph would have been angry and hated his brothers if it was all free will. But if it's all God and there's no free will... Then we get cynical about God. Why didn't you do something here? You could have done it. You forced me to go through this. Joseph did not become either cynical or bitter because he left the mystery to God. We don't like to work inside of mystery, but that's where God's people are supposed to work. Let me share with you two very quick stories and then I'll give you the third point and be done. And the Mona Lisa smile. Catherine Ann Watson, played by Julia Roberts, is a young single teacher in the 1950s. Her lifelong dream was to teach at Wellesley College, which was a very prestigious all-women's college in Massachusetts. And she got a job teaching art history. During one of the early classes, she pulled out one of Van Gogh's, uh, one of his most famous paintings, the 1988 painting called Sunflowers. And she described Van Gogh's work. He painted what he felt, not what he saw, she said. People didn't understand. To them, it seemed childlike and crude. It took years for them to recognize his actual technique. And she explains to her class, Van Gogh never sold a painting in his lifetime. Now, uh, all these years later, 60 or 70 years later at the time, where is he? And one of the students said he's famous. So famous, in fact, Catherine added, that everybody has a reproduction. There are postcards. We have a calendar interjected another student. There you go. Ms. Watson nodded, knowing that her class's attention had been seized. She continued with the, the ability now to reproduce art. It's now available to the masses. No original is necessary. Everybody can paint their own. 
So she pulled out a mid-sized box and she passed it around the classroom. Van Gogh in a box, ladies. The newest form of mass-distributed art, paint by numbers. The first student to handle the box began to read the advertisement on the front. Her voice read sarcastically, now everyone can be a Van Gogh. It's so easy. Just follow the simple instructions and in minutes you are on your way to being an artist. Van Gogh by numbers was one student's incredulous response. Ironic, isn't it? Catherine asked. She led her class to a poignant truth, allowing them to see, listen, the insane human tendency to dumb down the complex and to take the mysterious and make it simplistic. We want everything to fit into our box. We want our minds to understand. And yet we have a God who says, my ways are not your ways. They're past finding out. Those who have untarnished character resign themselves to the fact that I will not always understand God. And there is a mystery between how he works in his sovereignty and what he allows our human free will to do in that interplay. You may have heard this story. It was a very well-known story a few years back. John and Kay Talman prayed for their hostage missionary friends, Martin and Gracia Burnham. They had become hostages in the Philippines. They were missionary colleagues, and they interceded for the Burnham's safety and release. But when word of Martin's death came to their headquarters in Florida, the Talmans were stunned because they'd asked the Lord to cover them with a strong and mighty hand. But as the details emerged about the ambush in which Gracia was wounded and yet freed, it seemed as if God maybe had not answered their prayer. In a prayer letter to the supporters later, Kay described the final hours of the Burnham's Captivity. Martin and Gracia and the gorillas had been on the run for about seven days with little or no food. Both felt this was the end. Neither would get out alive. They'd been running in terrible weather, tropical torrential downpours, slipping and sliding and falling. Martin finally strung a hammock for himself and Gracia on top of a little knoll. And they prayed together. And the last thing they did was pray together. And here's what they prayed. God, thank you for the privilege of serving you. Please help us to serve you with gladness. And then the bullets hit. Gracia was the first to hit, and she tumbled down the hill away from the fighting. And then Martin was hit, and he rolled down beside her. By God's own hand, he laid Martin right down by his precious bride of 19 years, and they were together until he drew his last breath. Kay wrote, as I poured my heart out to the Father, I said, God, this is not how I would have written the last chapter. And she said, God spoke to her in a very gentle reply saying, Kay, this isn't the last chapter. And when she shared that story with a church friend, the church friend added, and it's not your book. You see, there is a mystery. The divine sovereignty of God interplays with human free will. He's writing the book. We don't understand. But those who have untarnished character resign themselves to the fact that God knows best. And somehow there's a mystery in the way he works his sovereignty and our free will. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to give you the third point. Don't run out. Just stand with me if you would. The last point's short. So no need to run out. I'll be done very quickly. Thirdly, those with untarnished honor. Look at this. Please get this. Maybe the best point in the whole series. All right? 
Those with untarnished honor will refuse to accept the role of the victim, but will instead make the most of every opportunity. We live, look at me for just a moment, we live in a victim society. Everybody wants to blame somebody else for something that's happened in their life. There are many that played the role of the victim in this biblical narrative. The brothers were victims because Joseph was our favorite. Jacob, I'm a victim because I lost my son. There's victimization all over this story. I mean, you you get a little bit of victimization when nobody wanted to take the blame and Reuben shoves Judah and says, I told you this would happen. Everybody's a victim in this whole story, except, well, even by the way, Jacob didn't take any responsibility. He was a bad dad. Shouldn't have had a favor in the first place. Shouldn't have made this mess at all. But Jacob did, but he's just a victim. He lost a son. The one who could have really cried victim was Joseph. He had untarnished honor. He was uncompromising. He trusted God. And yet he was the most broken and the most hurt, the most betrayed, the falsely accused, the forgotten. And he never, never, ever cried foul. There was a daughter that complained to her father about how how hard things were for her dad. I'm I'm tired of this. It seems like one problem after another, and I'm tired of struggling. She was a grown daughter saying to her grown father, I'm just tired of this. Everything's bad. Her father was a chef, so he took her into the kitchen. And he filled three pots with water, and he placed them each on a high fire. Soon the pots came to a boil. So in one of those pots boiling, he placed carrots, and another he placed eggs. And in the last pot, he put coffee greens, coffee beans, not grains. He let them sit and boil, and he didn't say a word. And his grown daughter's pretty annoyed by now. She's impatient, wondering what in the world her dad was doing. After a while, he went over and he turned off the burners and he fished out the carrots and he put them in a bowl and he pulled the eggs out, placed them in a bowl and he poured the coffee into a cup. And he said, darling, what do you see now? And she said, I see carrots, I see eggs, and I see coffee. And you can kind of hear the uh, annoyance in her voice, like, let's get on with this. Is there something here? So he brought her closer and he asked her to feel the carrots. She did, and she noted that they were soft. He then asked her to take an egg and break it. After pulling off the shell, she observed the hard-boiled egg. Finally, he asked her to sip the coffee, and she smiled as she tasted its rich flavor. But Dad, what does this mean? I, I don't get the story. He explained that each of them had faced the same adversity, boiling water. But each reacted differently. The carrot went in strong, hard, and unrelenting. But after being subjected to the boiling water, it softened and it became weak. The egg was fragile. Its thin outer shell had protected its liquid interior. But after sitting through the boiling water, its hard inside was revealed. But the ground coffee beans were unique. By boiling in the water, they changed the water. He asked his daughter, when adversity knocks on your door, which are you? Going to become soft and weak or hard and resistant? Or are you going to change the context in which you are in by the aroma of your life? Joseph changed the water. He preserved his people. You never know what adversity 
You never know when adversity might give you the opportunity to change the color of your situation or to change the circumstances of those around you. But if you're willing to change your world, if you're willing to see people saved through your response to the adversity that comes your way, then you're like Joseph, a man or woman with untarnished honor. Father, I thank you for your word today. Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes difficulties seem almost overwhelming. We never want to make light of the fact that pain is pain. Nothing good about it. Our own failures are painful. Nothing good about it. But how we respond can be the difference between our soft, weak, incapable life, our hardened, resistant life, or life that allows the adversity to work through them to change the color of our circumstances. Make us like those coffee beans. Make us like Joseph. Make us people of untarnished honor as we submit ourselves to you and the mystery of your working in our lives. Help us to quit trying to make it all make sense and be godly people who say, now I see at the end of the day what the enemy meant for evil. God has turned heads bow for just a moment this morning. I wonder if there might be someone here today who would say, Pastor Kevin, I've never invited Jesus to be the Lord of my life. Before I go today, I want to make absolute certain that I'm ready to meet him. I want to give my life to him. I want to surrender my life to his Lordship. I'd love to have a chance to pray with you this morning. If you've never committed your life to Christ, but you want to today before you leave, would you just slip up a hand right where you're at? Is there anyone in this room that would say, would you pray for me? I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Anyone in this room, anyone in this place, the head's still bowed then. I wonder how many would say, Pastor Kevin, there is some real adversity in my life right now, but I want to change. I don't want the adversity to change me. I want to change my circumstances, the people around me. I want, I want to be like the coffee beans and like Joseph. I want to change the color of the water. How many would raise your hand with me and say, that's where I want to be. Let's worship him together.